everyone. I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you subscribe to the podcast, you may have noticed that I dropped a little blurb about a new podcast platform called Lyceum into the feed. If you're like me and listen primarily to educational podcasts, then Lyceum is the perfect podcast player for you. It features a hand-curated catalog of educational shows, and each of those shows has a discussion room where listeners can chat with each other and even directly to hosts, including me. As it turns out, I'm also one of the co-founders of the Lyceum Initiative, so it would really mean a lot to me if you checked it out. I've included a download link in the show notes and on the website. To learn more about Lyceum, go to lyceum.fm. Before we get on to today's episode, I'd also like to give a quick shout-out to our most recent Patreon supporters, Robert and Andrew. You can also become a supporter of this podcast by going to patreon.com slash words for granted. Okay, so today's episode is an interview with Simon Horobin. Simon is a professor of English and literature at Oxford University, and his areas of scholarly interest include the history of English and medieval literature. Late last year, he published a book called Bagels, Bumpf, and Buses, A Day in the Life of the English Language, and his past works include Does Spelling Matter?, How English Became English, A Short History of a Global Language, and The English Language, A Very Short Introduction. Without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Okay, hi everyone. Uh, welcome to today's show with guest Simon Horobin. Simon, thanks for coming on to Words for Granted. You're very welcome. Um, all right, so for our listeners who might not know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. So I teach English language and literature at Oxford University, and my work's really about the history of the English language, looking at where it came from and how it's changed over the centuries it's been used from the language used by the Anglo-Saxons uh, Germanic language, um, and how that has changed radically into the language that we use today, and that's the, the world's global language. Um, and I've written books previously on topics like spelling, does spelling matter, which was really about how the spelling system has changed over time, but also how our attitudes towards it have changed, and about the history of the language and um, different attitudes and usages of English over time, and then my most recent book is one about the etymology of words, where they, where the individual words come from, how their meanings have changed over time. Right. And that book is uh, Bagels, Bumpf and Buses. Um, and yeah, that's actually the main reason why I reached out to you today, because, I mean, basically all of the work that you do is definitely of interest to listeners of Words for Granted, um, but particularly etymology. Uh, so the the subtitle of bagels, bump, and buses is a day in the English language, and it walks us through the activities of a typical day, morning to night, while looking at the etymology of hundreds of words that we encounter while commuting, eating, working, doing the mundane things that we do. Um, so when you wrote the book, why did you choose this format? Because there are lots of books that look at the etymologies of um, English words and more often phrases and idioms and you know things like um, 
uh, as happy as Larry or the, the real McCoy, those kinds of, you know, they're fascinating in their own right, but they tend to be more kind of specialist and unusual phrases and idioms. And I was kind of intrigued on in where the origins were of the words that we use all the time, the ones that don't stand out to us as interesting and unusual, the, the everyday ones. And so that was why I chose that format, um, a day in the life of the English language, because I wanted to start with the words that we use from the minute we get up in the morning. So there's stuff around having breakfast, uh, getting dressed, uh, having a cup of tea. That's maybe the slightly more English part of the, of the day. But um, and then going to work, um, activities we might do at work, things we do in our leisure hours and evenings, going out and then going to bed. So it seemed like a good format, a good structure for thinking about everyday words. Yeah, uh, I have to say the book really reinvigorated my own interest in the etymology of everyday words, because when I first started this show, that was mainly my my interest. I was very fascinated by the fact that these mundane words that are all around us that we don't think much about actually have stories to tell. Um, but as I continued on with the show, I started dividing uh, the show up into sort of more specialized categories of etymologies like place names, biblical etymology, words derived from ethnicities, and, and so on. Um, but as your book shows, um, the, the, the words for mundane, everyday words are no less fascinating. Um, so could you, could you walk us through a bit of the etymology we deal with every day? Let's, let's just say like from the time we wake up to the time we get to work. What, what, are, what are some fascinating etymologies we might encounter without knowing it? Sure. Well, I mean, I could start with the title of the book because that's sort of uh, to, to get that framework. So bagels being, uh, goes back to a Germanic word for an arm ring as used by the Anglo-Saxons. So if you can imagine the shape of it, you know, you could wear it on your arm as a piece of jewellery. Um, so that's an interesting one. And bump, I discovered actually recently, having given some talks in the US about the book, that it's not a very common word in America. Nobody seems to have heard of it. Um, but here we use it of the kind of um, all that mass of paperwork that we have to wade through during our office lives. Um, and it itself is a contraction of the word bum fodder, because in the 19th century, that was a term that was used for toilet paper. And it then just got um, contracted and then came to refer to any kind of, um, you know, rather sort of throwaway paper. And then buses, which is there to sort of describe words going to and coming back from the office, is a contraction of the Latin word omnibus, um, which is the, the dated plural of omnes, all, so for everybody. And it was a term that was coined by, um, in France originally, uh, by a company setting up as a sort of rival from the more exclusive bus companies that were intended to drive people around. And this was one that was cheaper and more accessible. So it was for everybody, an omnibus. So that's a sort of three examples right there. Uh, yes, I, I will say that as an American, uh, I don't think I had heard of the word bump before. Um, so um, as, as you were writing the book, did you have a favorite uh, chapter or sort of category of everyday life that you, re you, you really enjoyed looking at the etymologies of? Well, I'm quite keen on sports in general. And so there's a section that looks at the origins of various sporting terms. And because some of those go 
a long way back, um, they kind of intrigued me. So, for instance, I'm a keen player of tennis. And um, so I enjoyed discovering things like, I mean, it, the game itself originated in France. So many of the words themselves are French in origin. But I, I find it intriguing that the word tennis itself, for instance, comes from uh, the, the verb tenir, to take or receive, uh, because it was the imperative form that was shouted at the beginning of a rally, tenez. And um, similarly, the word for, you know, why we say love, 15 love, um, being from the French word earth, um, because it resembles the zero, uh, which then takes you to cricket, where we talk about somebody who scores nothing in an innings, a batsman, uh, getting a duck, because it's a duck's egg. And if you score, you then break your duck. Um, so there's those kind of intriguing connections that you find in sports that go back a long way. Yeah, I definitely learned a lot from that chapter. As someone who knows very little about little about sports in general, uh, that was definitely informative for me. Uh, now, I wonder, for a lay person, what is the value of understanding the language etymologically, uh, aside from the novelty of, oh, that's neat, or, oh, I didn't know that before? Um, you know, is there something greater to an etymological perspective on the language rather than just interesting water cooler talk? Yeah, good question. Um, I suppose one thing is that it gives us a different perspective on ideas of correctness and usage. So, for instance, uh, one of the things we're often told is that, you know, that, that there is a, a single correct meaning of a particular word or somebody's using a word incorrectly. When you get that historical perspective, I think you learn that language changes over time. And yes, there, are, there is such a thing as correctness at a particular time. But of course, words are essentially always in the hands or the mouths of their users. And so the idea that there is some sort of um, external uh, notion of correctness. People often locate it, of course, in a dictionary, but dictionaries themselves are um, descriptive rather than prescriptive. They're written by people who are basing the definitions on the analysis of large quantities of actual usage. And so, you know, I'm thinking about the sort of the classics, like the word decimate, which is always someone who will correct you if you say, if you use that word to mean destroy a large part of, because people will tell you that, well, it comes from the Latin word decimus, which means tenth, so it can only mean destroy exactly one tenth of. Um, and I can understand the attraction of those kinds of um, attitudes to etymology because they, they seem straightforward and clear. You can only use unique to mean you know one thing because it's from the Latin unus and so on. So that, that makes sense. But of course, because language isn't um, like maths, um, and people can use words in much more ambiguous ways. And once that sort of usage catches on, the word begins to change its meaning. And so I think it's a helpful way of giving you a perspective into um, ideas of correctness and change and a recognition that usage is more important than these kinds of arbitrary distinctions. And I also think it sheds fascinating light on the on history in general, the, the, the people who use these words, the people who invented them in the first place, it, tells, it sheds light on their lives and their interests. You know, so, for instance, the word 
daisy, which is a pretty humble little flower that we probably don't pay much attention to. When you know that its name goes back to uh, Old English, deasaya, uh, a day's eye, literally, um, you realise that at some point a thousand years ago, somebody noticed the way in which the petals open beginning of the day, the sun comes out and then close again at night. And that sort of metaphorical use, um, it may now not be apparent from the way that the form of the word today, but, you know, we can still appreciate that and understand that, you know, we no idea who it was who first came up with it, but we're still using it today. Yeah, uh, absolutely fascinating. Um, I mean, I, I myself, I'm very attracted to you know, rather than semantically conservative etymologies like manus, the Latin word for hand, I mean, that it makes sense that we get the word manual from that, uh, or that like teeth and dentist are ultimately cognate. I mean, that's that's all well and good, and perhaps uh, you know these these more logical, straightforward etymologies might be helpful if you're a if you're a language learner or you're trying to pass a standardized test but but those sorts of etymology etymologies aren't very interesting to me it, it's when we like you said we get this historical perspective and understand the um the this perspective on usage and and change and the fact that words are in their own way uh little little windows into the past these little time capsules that can preserve what our ling linguistic ancestors uh, thought, believed, and felt. And, you know, these these thoughts, beliefs, and feelings might mean nothing to us, but we still are the heirs of uh, the heirs of the language. Yeah, so for instance, the word cobweb is interesting to me because it preserves um, a part of an old English word for a spider. You know, you might wonder what a cobweb is. And the web bit, we can understand, but cob preserves part of the Old English word atacop, uh, which was what the Anglo-Saxons called a spider. Um, and it literally means poison head, telling us that the Anglo-Saxons thought that spiders were venomous. So again, it's sort of preserving something about the folk beliefs of the people who coined these words, which has long since been lost as science has moved on, but as also as the word has changed in form and we've lost that connection. Yes, isn't there something uh, with garlic as well? I forget what the etymology there is. Yeah, garlic is uh, the old English word gar is a spear. Um, so it, you find it in the opening line of the Anglo-Saxon epic poem Beowulf, because they were called the Gardena, the spear Danes. And um, the only place that word survives today is in the word garlic, which seems like a rather unusual and um, unclear connection. But a garlic, garlic is etymologically a spear leak. Right. That's that's actually what I thought, but I didn't want to misspeak. Um, you know, a, a, as someone who deals with etymology, uh, people tend to assume that you know everything, every etymology of every word ever, which, of course, is not the case. Um I, I'm, I'm yeah. sure you encounter I get this that all the time uh, as well. As well. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that said, were there any words as you were writing bagels, bump, and buses uh, that you were surprised by the etymologies of, like totally new word stories that revealed themselves to you? Well, there are ones that um, still frustratingly uh, you realize 
you can't actually explain because um, the etymology may be clear, but the, the reason for it still isn't. So, for instance, the word sycophant, I don't know if you've come across the etymology of that before. It seems to go back, a sycophant being another word for someone who's a toady or a, um, a suck-up, as we would say in, in, in English, uh, in, in England. Um, sycophant goes back to the Greek word um, sukon, meaning a fig. Um, and it literally seems to mean one who shows the fig. And it's not clear how, you know, what that originally referred to or how it gets to the meaning that we have today. I mean, there are various suggestions that have been made that it's to do with um, that it's to do with people informing on other people who may have been not paying their taxes correctly when dealing in figs in the ancient world is a, a possible explanation of it. Um, but it's not clear, you know, how you get from um, an informant to to the sense of a, a sort of flatterer today. Another possibility is that um, there's some kind of obscene gesture being referred to, making a fig, um, which again is possible, but there's not really any hard evidence for it. So that's the sort of one way you think there must be some really fascinating story that lies behind that, but you can't quite tease it out. Yeah, I uh, it, I currently am dealing with one of these right now. The next episode of Words for Granted that I will be releasing, which at the time of the release of this episode, it will have already been published, but um, it's on Break a Leg. I'm doing a series on idioms, and it seems that the earliest idiomatic usage of Break a Leg uh, meant to give birth to a bastard child, and I couldn't find much in way of uh, explaining the the logic of that one. I, just out of curiosity, do you have any insight into that, what that might mean? Or where that might come from, rather? No, I haven't come across that particular explanation of it, and I would have to look into it, yeah. So no, afraid not. Let's take a quick break from my conversation with Simon to hear a word from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Literati. Literati is a subscription book club that makes it easy to find unique and interesting books for your kids by delivering great stories straight to your doorstep. Literati's home deliveries can help provide your child with the uplifting educational material they need in the upcoming weeks. Each Literati box contains five beautiful books based on a theme and contains exclusive original art and a personalized note to your child. Literati actively curates stories that spark curiosity and soften the heart, which saves you hours of searching the store or scrolling through lists of mediocre books online, and Literati will beat the Amazon list price. Only keep your favorites and send back the rest for free. That means you're only paying for the books your kids love. You can even donate books you already own, and Literati will match every one you send. For a limited time, go to literati.com slash words for 25% off your first two orders. This is the best Literati offer available anywhere, and to get it, you have to go to literati.com slash words for 25% off your first two orders. That's literati, L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I dot com slash words. I'd like to also talk about does spelling matter? Uh, of course, uh, an earlier book than Bagel's Bump and Buses. Uh, now, spelling is 
something I talk about sometimes in the show, usually when the spelling of a word has something historically peculiar or interesting about it, but I've, I've never really addressed spelling as a topic unto itself. Um, so, you know, given your expertise on the topic, um, I'm sure listeners would love to know, uh, does spelling matter according to you? I suppose my conclusion in that book is that it does matter, but not quite in the way that we think it does. So one of the things that interested me about spelling that sort of set me off writing the book was just how obsessed we are today with notions of correctness around spelling. I mean, it's around language use in general, um, but around spelling, because it's the one area of the language that's almost entirely standardized. That's to say there's almost only one spelling permitted of most words. Obviously, there are some differences between US and British English and some variables, but it's for a very fixed area. And in Britain in particular, um, we are very um, critical of anybody who makes any form of spelling mistake. And so the idea of correctness is really important here. But if you go back to uh, the medieval period, so really up to about 1500, uh, there were no standard spelling forms at all. In fact, people were writing writing much more in the way that they pronounce the words. Um, there's no, uh, the standard spelling system only began really with the printing press at the end of the 15th century and took several centuries for it to become uh, widely recognized and for this concept of um, a fixed system to be established. And even then it was really only in the uh, printed word. So in handwritten documents of the 18th century, uh, there's still widespread variation. And what fascinated me is how you get from that one situation where it's much more um, liberal and where variation was the norm to something that is so tightly regulated today. Uh, so that, that was partly what I was trying to do, is question these ideas of fixity and normativity that have got very much bound up with the spelling system. Um, and, and the way in which we think that being good at spelling is somehow an index of general education and achievement. And it's clear that the two things are quite separate. Some people never really need to learn to spell. They just read books and just somehow acquire that. You know, they just have a good visual memory, I suppose. Whereas other people, highly educated and intelligent people, can struggle to spell you know, for, for their whole lives. And I guess we all have words that it doesn't matter how many times we look up embarrassed or whatever, uh, we still can't remember how many R's and S's there are. Um, so, but what, what I thought was really interesting about spelling and why spelling I think does matter a lot is because it, again, rather like the discussion we've been having about etymology is it does preserve some elements of the history of the language. Again, it's a sort of like we think about words as fossils, which is how early etymologists thought of it. It's still preserving something of the history about whether it's perhaps about the pronunciation of the word, like the word K-N-I-G-H-T, which in Middle English was pronounced knicht. It's, it's, it's preserving that for us. Um, or because it's pointing us something to its etymology again. So, of course, spellings is a, is a useful um, way of uh, identifying links between words and their forms in other languages or because they're telling us something about the way a pronunciation or a use of a word has changed over time. So I think spelling is an important um, feature of English. And of course, because the spelling system began to be fixed in the end of the 15th century, it's actually a, a much better guide to the way that 
English was spoken at that time than it is today, um, slightly bizarrely. But, but for a, someone interested in the history of the language, it's a very valuable tool. Yes, I, I agree. So I, I wonder, um, I guess, even though it's very clear, in, inarguably so, that when you look at the historical written record, the what we consider correct English now has been arbitrarily decided by historical circumstances, time and place of when that standardization uh, happened. But um, spelling does still matter insofar as people in the real world still judge us by our spelling. Um, I mean, can, can, can you speak to, to this point at all and, and how spelling matters in this respect? Yeah. And if it should matter. Yeah, well, exactly right. That it's because it is a um, um, a way in which, uh, for instance, if you apply for a job um, and there are spelling mistakes in your resume, clearly that you are going to be judged on that basis. Um, and you know, I recognise there's some validity in that because, of course, everybody is aware what the standard is, and if you want to um, show that you have mastered it, but also that you're taking sp- sufficient care and showing enough um, concern about your application, then, of course, you know, everyone has access to a dictionary. So it's not the hardest thing to just to look it up. And so I can see why employers might think that something that looks sloppily put together and where someone hasn't taken the time to check their spelling um, might undermine an application. But as I said, I still feel that we place too much emphasis on correct spelling um, as an in- index of um, you know, other kinds of um, abilities. Um, it, it's something that is really a kind of uh, a rote learning exercise in many ways, one that for some people it requires lots and lots of memorization. For other people, it's done almost without noticing. Um, but that's sort of what it is. Um, and therefore, I think that it can be taken too far as a sort of way in which we should be judging people. But I think it's true to say that the reality is, you know, you wouldn't want to not teach children to spell or somehow think that, you know, that it wasn't important because the reality is that the the context within which we um, are working means that people will judge you about your spelling, your use of the apostrophe. I mean, that's a particular obsession in Britain. Um, but these things do matter in, in terms of society and therefore continue to do so. Right. I mean, you know, the, in, in the case of the apostrophe, that is a bit more, that's like a grammatical issue, right? So to, to leave, to, to misplace an apostrophe, that actually changes the meaning of a word. But um, the, the reality is, from my point of view, like I, in the abstract, couldn't care less whether someone spells necessary or license uh correctly, which are two words that I often misspell. Um, but yet when when they're on the paper and I'm or on the screen, whatever it may be, and I'm reading someone else's work and there are spelling mistakes, it's strange. Even though, like I said, I I don't truly care in the abstract. Yeah, in 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 practice I do. It does sort of like grate on some ingrained sense of of rightness that I have. And uh, clearly I'm not alone in that yeah that's right i mean i think one of the the truths of this is that we all have our own linguistic bugbears you know no matter how kind of informed we are 
about the nature of language change and variation and the sort of arbitrariness of some of these standards. You know, if you look at the history of English spelling, there are all sorts of variables at various different points. And all that's happening is that one of them gets selected, not because it's a more appropriate form or somehow communicatively more efficient, that it's just a kind of arbitrary selection. And um, so there's no need to prefer that form over others. Um, But yet we still judge people if they don't, and we hold some of these standards very high. I I suspect part of it is that, of course, we're all kind of linguistically invested, partly because we've taken the trouble to learn all of these rules. And therefore, of course, we're highly incentivized ensuring that other people uh, continue to observe them. Uh, You know, we did it, so they should. You know, it's somehow seen as being something that's good for you when you're um, growing up, a rite of passage in some way. Um, but it's also that um, we don't want the standards to change. Um, and, of course, you sort of look back on, on the language at the point at which you were learning it as the, the golden age, typically. And every generation has those kinds of rules that they think are extremely important. Um, you know, one that I see changing a lot today in Britain is in Britain, British usage, we distinguish between practice with an S, um, which is the verb and practice with a C, which is the noun. And of course, in American English, it's just the C. And, and whether it's the influence of American usage um, or whether it's simply because it's a distinction that most people don't recognize anymore, um, most people now are spelling practice with a C, whether it's the noun or the verb. And it's hard to argue with that, really. Um, it's incorrect. But are we losing anything by losing that distinction? Or in fact, could you argue that we're gaining something because you don't really need to distinguish between the noun and the verb um, in that way? It's not, a, it's not really a, an important um, distinction to be able to make. And so you could argue that it ma- in fact, you're making the system more efficient. Um, and of course, quite often that is how a language is working is the change is being driven by efficiency, by communication, by the way that speakers want to use it. But then there's a break that's sort of um, working against that, which is the standard form of the language, which is being insisted upon and and taught and um, and, and which in some senses is this kind of artificial way of restraining language change and stopping it doing that. Uh, I I wonder, at at what point does a word, whether it's spelling or meaning, at what point is that change legitimized? I mean, the, the dictionary obviously is the be all end all uh when it, when it, when it comes to like mass acceptance but the dictionary itself tends to lag um new usages uh that are actually used in the living language in the in the spoken language um so is there how can I, how can i say this um i mean basically does it simply come down to if enough people do it wrong if enough people do it incorrectly uh does that make it correct well i think that is part of it um but it's a it's a really important question that as to when do you decide that the language has changed rather than everyone's getting it wrong and i mean people often say to me i don't mind language change as long as it's not just people getting it wrong Uh, but of course that is kind of what it is but what I always try and remind people is that that notion of right and wrong is really one that we've imposed on the language from the 18th century onwards. Before that, we might think about it much more neutrally as just different variables. 
And um, so it's a rather artificial way of thinking about it. But of course, we can't, we live in a standard language culture, so we can't step outside that reality. Um, And of course, we talk about the dictionary, but there are more than one dictionary as well. So that we have to also think that some dictionaries tend to be, especially with online dictionaries, that they might be updated more frequently and more responsive to those kinds of changes in usage, whereas others or more formal dictionaries might take longer. And so, you know, one example that I'm conscious of um, at the moment is the um, the word minuscule, uh, which most people tend to spell M-I-N-I, minuscule, which is sort of how it sounds. And it makes sense because it links it up with other mini words, miniature, mini mouse. Um, but actually, etymologically, it goes back to the Latin word minus, uh, minusculus, somewhat smaller, it means. And so technically, it should be spelled M-I-N-U-S um, rather than M-I-N-I-S. And what's happened there is that people have forgotten that etymology, lost that connection, uh, and now are connecting it with other words. And what you find when you look it up in the dictionary is that um, it now appears in some dictionaries as uh, M-I-N-I, as um, uh, a variant spelling of minuscule. It's the sort of point at which it's starting to be accepted, I think. And what, what, of course, those dictionaries are basing that on is large collections of electronic uh, written language across a whole different range of registers. Um, dictionaries tend to include not just printed material, but also online material, informal material. And so increasingly, I suppose, what's happening is that they're recognising that most people now spell it minuscule. Um, and so... That that is the process, I suppose. But for many people, that will always just remain wrong, and what what those people are doing is just getting it wrong, and they just need to learn how to spell it correctly. Yeah, but then you know, I think it just again comes back to time and place because there are words that are standardized, words whose spellings are standardized now, uh, whose spellings are actually like hyper corrected false etymologies. So, oh gosh. You, you, perhaps you have an example of this off the top of your head where um, letters were inserted uh, un, un, under like false presumptions about what the etymology was. Like, I can't think of any at the moment. Well, there's a nice example in the word haughty, uh, which is actually the Latin word altus. Um, so it really looks nothing like modern English, haughty. Um, and what's happened there is that as well as gaining a, um, an H um, by comparison with the French word, oh, hi, um, it's also gained a silent GH in the 16th century by comparison with words like court and taught, um, or the words doubt and debt, which have got silent Bs in them, going back to uh, the presumption in the 16th century that they must be connected to the Latin words debitum and jubitare. Uh, but of course, in fact, they came into English from French, um, and therefore they were, came in without the Bs, um, French debt and doot. And so there is this sort of tendency to add these letters, particularly in that period where it was partly about um, trying to make English look more like Latin, which has been a, a sort of long obsession with many people concerned about the status of English um, as a language. 
which of course on principle is kind of a crazy thing to do since English itself is not a romance language. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it's particularly a, 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 a sort of preoccupation of the 18th century who at that point were particularly concerned with really the variability that I've been describing in English up until that point, because they felt that a language that was varying like that was one that was unstable um, and needed to be fixed. Um, and they thought that the 18th century was the period where the language had sort of got to its sort of um, uh, its, its clearest and most elegant form in the hands of the 18th century writers. And so they were concerned to try and um, pin it down at that point in its history. And so they wrote grammar books and, of course, Dr. Johnson's Dictionary of 1755 as part of that movement. But when they tried to set down the grammar of English, the only model they had was the grammars that they knew of Latin and Greek. And so they tried to explain um, English grammar according to uh, the grammar of the classical languages, which was completely different, as you said. And so that's partly about trying to give English that greater status to make it look like a classical language. But it was also partly um, um, an attempt to explain it according to a whole load of categories that English at that point did, really didn't have. Um, so you see sort of nouns set out as according to paradigms in the way that you see Latin and Greek words, you know, with different cases and genders and so on. Um, and invented a whole kind of different set of categories, but also imposed different features of Latin grammar onto English so that we end up with a number of those prescriptive rules that still dominate usage today about not splitting infinitives, not using double negatives, not ending sentences with prepositions. They're all ones that were imposed in the 18th century in that way. Right. And of course, before that point, if you look at written English, uh, th th there are sometimes triple negatives uh, in, in Middle English by, you know, writers that we read and revere and, you know, perhaps to some paradoxically consider correct and authoritative. Um, I, I, I find it interesting that this, this, this standardization of English that took place is sort of before the emergence of you know, the field that we now call linguistics, like an actual proper understanding of the science of language. Um, but we have these, um, we, we, we have these structural impositions borrowed from Latin and Greek as, as if they are some sort of linguistic absolutes, like the authorities by which we must measure all languages. But of course, those are just two languages among literally tens of thousands that have ever existed. And, you know, when, when these English, these, these 18th century English grammarians were standardizing our language, uh, they did not have that perspective and we're sort of still stuck with that perspective today. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the classical languages has really dominated much of the history about the sort of debates around the status of English and the presumption that, it's partly because, of course, this whole question about variability and um, that, that I've been talking about uh, didn't apply to Latin and Greek in the 18th century because, of course, nobody spoke them. And so the advantage of a dead language is it's fixed and unchanging. And so by contrast with the, the, the language that was used by the great classical writers, um, people, you know, the, the writers of the 18th century 
felt that the language they had was was one that was just much too variable um, and didn't sort of measure up to this kind of you know very clear and crisp and fixed forms of classical Latin and Greek. Um, but of course, it's a complete sort of myth to think about about those languages in that way because as they were used at the time they would have been much more variable um so it's partly a sort of a, a historical problem as you say and uh, partly of course in the 18th century as well they had other sort of the, as the age of reason they were trying to understand language according to um various other kinds of non-linguistic models so that example about the double negatives as you rightly point out that Previously, writers like Chaucer would have used multiple negation. Um, you know, Chaucer describes the knight in the general prologue to the Canterbury Tales as he never yet no villainy, nay seda. So never yet no villainy, nay seda. So it's a triple negative. Um, and the point of it was that it would add force to the negation rather than that you would start to think of negatives cancelling each other out. And that idea of two negatives cancelling out and making a positive is one that was borrowed from mathematics because it seemed logical at the time. So trying to impose this kind of 18th century rationalised, logical um, perspective to language, which seems to them perfectly sensible. But of course, language doesn't work in that kind of logical way. It doesn't have to work in that way, certainly. So that um, naturally, dialects of English still today very frequently use multiple negation. Um, and it's just a way that speakers have of emphasizing something. All right. Well, this was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Simon, for coming on to the show. Um, if Again, the book that we began our conversation with is Bagels, Bump, and Buses, A Day in the Life of the English Language. I think all of you will enjoy it very much. It's, it, it's quite amazing, Simon, how much information you pack into each paragraph. It's just one etymology after the next. It's like really a lightning round of... Uh, of really fascinating linguistic insight. So uh, I, all, all of you should check it out. And uh, if listeners want to keep up with you online, where can they best find you? Well, I'm on Twitter at, at SCP Horobin, posting various sort of word-related and etymological facts. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you again, Simon. And that's it for today's episode of Words for Granted. 